standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 245 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I'm excited that we have a new shed. I also turn 46 this week and these two facts may well be related. I'm excited you've got a new shed. It's pretty good. I love a bit of DIY. Yeah, I mean, DIY might be pushing it. D-I-G? Do it, the Gary? I don't know. (laughs) It wasn't myself that did it. I did some painting. I've done some painting and some glamorous assisting. What's in the shed? Everything, Jen. Absolutely everything. (laughs) Uh, All sorts of stuff at the moment. It's not been organised yet. It's just the stuff that was in the old shed, but the old shed was very much trying to make its way out of this world. (laughs) Bless you. You're so shed naive. You think it's ever going to change. Oh. You think that other people don't just shove it all in and then constantly go, I'm going to sort it out later (laughs) and then move I am optimistic that, and this is none of my doing, this is absolutely none of my doing, that there will be a shelving system and storage and it will be kept neat and tidy, uh, apart from an area where I chuck in plants that have died and I don't know what to do with the pot yet. Fair dues. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I've been dog setting this weekend and I swear to God that dog said my name. Sausages. (laughs) (laughs) seriously he was a little bit out of sorts because while he was happy to see me i wasn't the person that he primarily wanted to see i sat down on the sofa and he sat down next to me and he just went like that and then he just went (laughs) he spoke i will not have a word said against that that's adorable. I believe you. I believe him. I believe you. Because Clarky comes in, no matter what time of day it is, he jumps in through his cap flap and he goes, Mama! 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 <laughs> and then he just wanders around the house shouting my name and he will walk straight past Gary. I've called it meouching. He's marching. He meouches straight past Gary to me to shout at me, Mama! I'm like, you win? And he's like, mm, that's it. And that's all he wants. Just recognition of his of his results. Talking of achievements, Jen. You are quite. I, <laughs> I'm Jen Offord, and I now know that it only takes 15 minutes to run to Greg's from my mum's house. This is an incredibly dangerous new bit of knowledge, Jen. It's life-changing, potentially, I would say. A life-changing piece of <laughs> intelligence. I figured this out because I'm doing my couch to 5K, and it was the one where you have to run for 20 minutes, and I was like, well, I've got to pick up something for my daughter from Argos, which is near Greg's. So I thought, well... I'll run down there and I'll walk back. And it took not 20 minutes, but about 15, which was annoying, actually, because then I had to run for a bit longer and come back. But like, (laughs) yeah, I literally ran to Greg's and I did buy a sausage roll. Yes, I did. Gary and I were discussing, we were discussing how it might be useful for estate agents. It certainly would have been useful for us if as well as saying there's a school nearby, there's like a really nice park nearby, where's the nearest Greg's? That would have had a huge effect Mm. on where we bought a house. My brother and I are going to Iceland on holiday in November and we booked the hotel based on how near it was cheap restaurants. It's a good plan. Do they have a Greg's? Which is kind of the Greg's equivalent, yeah, <laughs> because it's so expensive in Iceland. I was like, right, this one's got a Domino's pizza next door. <laughs> Job done. This is the closest Greg's or Domino's have ever been to being called a restaurant. Well done, Hannah. <laughs> what we'll say yeah. about Greg's is, apart from obviously being notoriously very reasonably priced, the coffee is actually quite nice. Oh, interesting information. I don't think I've ever bought anything in Greg's. What? Hannah. <laughs> yeah, I genuinely don't. I don't even know if Cambridge has a Greg's. It must have one, but I don't know where it is. I would think even Cambridge would have a Greg's. Surely these are difficult times. It must times. have one, but 
One of the most popular events at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival is the queue for Greg's of a morning. I've seen it like absolutely yeah. jam-packed down the road. We talk about Greg's quite a lot on this podcast, don't we? And I'm just wondering if it is always my fault that that happens. No, I'm I'm also a big fan of Greg's. Okay. I guess as the northerner, it would probably be more my fault. Okay. There's a real distinct markation when you're travelling from south to north, which obviously I do quite a lot to go see family where if you want a Greg's, you have to basically get to sort of Lincoln before they're then at every single motorway service station. <laughs> but before then, it's only like one in three. <laughs> GPSM, Greg's per square mile. Yes, absolutely. I think we should patent this. I think we're on to a winner. Make an app. <laughs> Later on, I chat to Alex Donerkey, who has a cat called Mickey. That isn't why I'm talking to her. We're chatting about her play, When We Died, in which an embalmer comes face to face with a rapist. But I thought I'd ease you in with some capture. <laughs> I think that was a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> wow. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I chat to boxer Caroline Dubois about the Olympics, trash talking and turning professional. And in Rated or Dated, will it be springtime for podcasts, we wonder, as we watch 1968's The Producers. But first, are we about to lose our marbles? It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we're big time tipping our hat to Michelle Yeoh and her new little man statue. And her new Google googly eyes. The Google googly eyes are a lovely touch. Uh, well yeah. done, Google. I liked that they follow you round when you move your cursor. People who haven't seen it, if you put Michelle Yeoh's name into Google, although maybe not by this point, I don't know. Google gets googly eyes. What did you think of the Oscars? I thought it was better than last year's Oscars because, you know, less violent, less drama, I suppose. I enjoyed Hugh Grant's interview on the biscuit-coloured carpet and him referring to himself as looking like a scrotum. I thought he did very well last night. Obviously, well chuffed that Michelle Yeoh won and was given the award by Halle Berry, which was really lovely too. I think it obviously did way, way better than it has done in the past. I was a bit surprised, I have to say, by Jamie Lee Curtis winning. I don't know. Mm. I've not seen Wakanda Forever, but I had seen all of the other performances, and I've no doubt Angela Bassett is great in Mm. it, because she's great in Black Panther, which I have seen. I was surprised it went to Jamie Lee Curtis, I have to say. I think there was a better performance in that film that could have won that and didn't. But that's just my opinion. But what I do want to say about Jamie Lee Curtis is she was asked in the after interviews, because she has a trans daughter, and she was asked in the interviews what she made of making the the categories gender neutral. And people being put on the spot at that moment, I thought she gave an incredibly nuanced answer, which actually seemed to lean towards more leave them alone because women will lose out. Mm. Yeah, which, you know, we've discussed on the podcast yeah. and- I agree. Yeah. It is interesting. I think Jamie Lee Curtis, she's she's not in Everything Everywhere All at Once loads, but her character is really big in that film. And the theory is they've given her the Oscar because she's sort of been ignored for the rest of her career, yeah. particularly because she's done a lot of horror movies and horror gets ignored. But like Angela Bassett's been ignored for all of her career. Agreed. Anyway. Anyway, let's stick with entertainment. I'm going to talk about the BBC catering to the Tories. But apart from saying man of the match of the day, Gary Lineker is now back at work and already thanking the best and fairest broadcaster in the world, his words, not mine, and acknowledging that the government's migration policy is horrific, inhumane and shameful, I'm not going to focus on the overblown hoo-ha that took over the weekend. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I think whatever anybody's intentions were with that, what we should be talking about, which is people who were on small boats desperate to get here, was pushed aside and we ended up regurgitating a very old conversation about the BBC. And Gary Lineker became the main character and... I don't want to demean anyone's intentions, but that was not a particularly edifying conversation that anyone was having over the weekend from from Uh, all sides. Agreed, agreed. So instead, I'm going to talk about David Attenborough. (laughs) Yeah, Not just because I love him, which I do, I actually know. So you'll also know how chuffed I am that a new Attenborough started on BBC One on Sunday evening. Wild Isles explores the majestic wildlife of the UK and Ireland and is quite probably, sadly, the broadcasting legend's on-location swan song. On a scale of 1 to 100, though, the delight of seeing Sir David just chilling with some puffins is a solid 110. Uh, Yes, (laughs) Yes, and it's there for the taking. As much as it is news that a nearly 97-year-old is still making some of the most important TV you can watch... It's bigger news that the BBC has decided not to screen one of the episodes. A reportedly too hot to broadcast episode six will only go out on the iPlayer. Why for, I hear you ask? Does Sir David do something unmentionable with a badger? Does he criticise the government's migration policy? If you could just imagine an asterisk there, I'd be grateful. Does he get his little old bum out on camera? No. No, none of that. The sixth episode, which I have to say the BBC claims was never meant to be aired on the telly, is understood to be a stark look at the losses of nature in the UK and what has caused these declines. It is also understood to include some examples of rewilding, a concept that has been controversial in some right-wing circles. The Telegraph has already had a popper ante for taking funding for wild owls from two nature charities, the WWF and the RSPB. Previously criticised, it says, and I'll let you work out who buy for yourself, for their political lobbying. Laura Howard, who produced the programme and used to work at the BBC's Natural History Unit, said she did not believe its messages to be political. She told The Guardian... I think the facts speak for themselves. You know, we've worked really closely with the RSPB in particular, who are able to fact-check all of our scripts and provide us with detailed scientific data and information about the loss of wildlife in this country. And it is undeniable we are incredibly nature-depleted. And I don't think that is political. I think it's just facts. Ah, facts, facts, problematic facts. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do with you? Well, I'll be watching them on the iPlayer, and I suggest that you do too. Now then, that asterisk I mentioned. I mean, of course Attenborough isn't criticising the government's migration policy, is he? Is he? In episode one, there's an excellent dramatic segment about barnacle geese, and it is estimated a half a million migrate here each winter. Oh, I'm outraged. I am outraged. (laughs) Well, the UK is geographically and meteorologically perfect as a place for migration, which, says Sir David makes us a vital refuge for these long-distance travellers. Indeed. Mm. I don't know if you also saw that Dame Caroline Spellman has been appointed onto the board of Natural England. And she is the woman who once tried to sell our forests off into private hands. So, you know. Oh, God. It's not good, is it? It's not good. It's not good. And it's such a weird thing for them to be up in arms about because... Every nature programme that the BBC makes with Attenborough helming, with Attenborough narrating, 
they, they have started putting in the facts, which is we are fucking up the planet, but we can reverse it. Let's try and do things to save yeah. it. Why should it be different in the one about the UK? Yeah, it's mad. Tell me some more mad, Hannah. Tell me some more mad. Let's talk about what are commonly known as the Elgin Marbles, the collection of ancient Greek sculptures and friezes nicked from the Parthenon and the Acropolis of Athens, which are currently housed in the British Museum, but are among Britain's most controversial, do the bunny ears, possessions. Here's a little bit of history to save people pausing this and googling. They date from the 5th century BC and were first removed or, you know, stolen (laughs) between 1801 and 1812 by agents of Lord Elgin, who was the then ambassador to Ottoman Greece and planned to create a private museum. The British Crown bought them off Elgin for £35,000 when he had some financial troubles in 1816. That's a lot of money for 1816. It is, yeah, yeah. But isn't as much money as it cost him to get him over here, so... Ah. Oh, okay. The Crown then gifted trusteeship to the British Museum. Elgin claimed he had permission to take them, but no hard evidence of this claim seems to exist. Although a government inquiry held just before the purchase, which was not at all suspicious, (laughs) decided he was telling the truth. Oh, well. Greece does not agree and has been asking for them back ever since. So, interesting, though, all this is. Why am I telling you it now? Well, the marbles are back in the news after Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who's taken a break from creating the optimum temperature of his swimming pool. Man of the people. Man of the people. (laughs) And has vowed to protect the marbles from being returned to Greece, saying they remain a huge asset to the UK, unlike his government. But um, I'm... The Guardian said this was in line with both his predecessors. And I have to say, I thought, oh, look, they've forgotten Liz Truss because she can't possibly (laughs) have found the time to have had an opinion on this and totally trash our economy in such a short space of time. But I was wrong. She did indeed say, I do not agree with this when asked about returning them to Greece. But her predecessor, Boris Johnson, actually flip-flopped on this issue. How (laughs) unlike him. Eventually landing on, it's up to the British Museum. Sunak's statement does dash some hopes that progress was being made, with George Osborne saying last year there was a deal to be done. Well, what's it got to do with him? Well, wait, he's the chairman of the British Museum. What? <laughs> How does he keep getting these jobs that he's not at all qualified for? Anyway. Wow, wowzers, wowzers. Didn't he leave the Evening Standard to become an investment banker? Yes. In real life and in Cockney rhyming slang. <laughs> Although, to give him his due, and no, I can't believe I just said that either. He does seem to want to find a solution here. Let's go back to Sunak, though, who said, quote, the UK has cared for the Elgin marbles for generations. And I'm going to stop him there because the standard of care hasn't always been great. Oh. A botched restoration attempt in the 30s did what experts have described as irreparable damage to them. That is awful to hear. Not surprising to hear, but the the tiny silver lining on that is it's just reminded me of the lady who redid the painting yeah. and made <laughs> made it look made Jesus look like a monkey. Yeah. There is still talk of us lending the Greeks their own possessions, but it seems any discussion of them leaving the UK permanently is now off the table. Again. Perhaps inspiration could be taken from the Pope. No, I can't believe I just <laughs> said that What's going either. on with you? <laughs> uh, 
who recently got round what could have been a politically tricky situation by gifting three Parthenon marbles in possession of the Holy City to the Greek Orthodox Church. Why are we so keen to hang on to something that's not ours? I wonder if it's because they see it as the Elgin marbles are the gate that's holding back claims for loads of other things that we've nicked from loads of other places and are in our positions. Yeah, I don't think that changes my question, but I can understand why they might Mm. not want that to happen. I think there's a difference between something that came from an expedition, you know, an archaeological dig that was funded, that got something out of the ground that no one knew was there Mm. and due to possibly whatever sort of piracy style laws existed in in Victorian times that that we could possibly claim our ass because we paid to dig them up and something that was outside on a wall in public I love that chipped off the side of it and taken home yeah yeah Hannah how do you feel having big duck George Osborne and the Pope slightly sick I would say I'm gonna have funny dreams tonight (laughs) (laughs) Would you like to get off the subject of that quite quickly and have a bit of good news? Yes, please. Okay, so NASA has appointed its first female head of science. Whoop, whoop. Dr. Nicola Fox is a solar scientist, which means she invented those pretty lights for our garden. Of course it doesn't. Although, to be fair, I I don't know what it actually does mean. (laughs) Something to do with the sun and science. She's actually a Brit coming from Hitchin in Hertfordshire. I worked for a paper there for a while and stuff this interesting happens there all the time. Of course it doesn't. It does actually have great charity shops though. Fox, who now commands a space mission budget of around £6.75 billion. Pounds. That's a lot of lights for the garden. <laughs> that is a lot of lights for the garden. That's how many Jack Monroe has in her house because she doesn't use real light bulbs. <laughs> She said her role meant she had the best job on the planet. I mean, maybe the universe. I'm sure she'll tell us when she finds out. Fox told Radio 4's Today programme, Growing up in Hitchin, you might dream of working for NASA, but it certainly doesn't seem as if it could ever be a reality. Whatever you're interested in, whatever your heart tells you you're interested in, that's what you should do. That's kind of similar to what Michelle Yeoh said at the Oscars, actually. It's not that far different. When it works out, it's a beautiful dream. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a bit of cynicism. Never end on a high note. <laughs> <laughs> More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I'm talking about the prohibitive cost of childcare. And actually, I've coincided it with a once in a blue moon when the government is also talking about the cost of childcare, with Chancellor Jeremy Hunt vowing to help reduce the cost of childcare on Wednesday's budget, at Wednesday's budget, in Wednesday's budget, for Wednesday's budget, by Wednesday's budget, (laughs) through Wednesday's budget, via Wednesday's budget. (laughs) One of those will be correct. Has he stuck to his vows or got off with big business in a cupboard instead? You tell me, as right now, it's only Monday and I've no idea. Childcare being a big feminist issue is nothing new. Feminists have been campaigning for free universal childcare since the second wave. And while hands-on dads are much more common these days, childcare remains mostly down to women and therefore remains the biggest barrier to ensuring women have the same opportunities as men. This also means that sorting it out is an economic no-brainer. Get more people, women are people, available (laughs) to work. 
grow the economy. Sorry if any of that came as news to you. Women are people, it's true. As it stands, childcare costs represent almost one third of the average family income in the UK, compared with as little as 1% in Germany, which means it's no wonder that some parents, mostly mums, take time out to look after the kids themselves, rather than working simply to pay nursery costs. Indeed, the number of women aged 25 to 34 leaving work to look after family is rising at the sharpest rate for 30 years, according to ONS data. The UK has slipped down the International League table for women in work by five places, with what's known as the motherhood penalty, the most significant driver of the gender gap. According to campaigners Pregnant and Screwed, three in four mothers who pay for childcare say it just no longer makes financial sense for them to work. So yeah, you know, the economy is still wobbly, it's still precarious. And yes, to actually sort this out, to make a huge positive difference to working women that would then make a huge positive difference to the economy, demands a substantial outlay. Are Hunt's proclamations that the government could make a, quote, big difference to reduce childcare costs going to bear fruit? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Budget after budget has ignored childcare. Pandemic measures ignored childcare and both should have treated it as critical infrastructure like roads and the internet. And so while it is good to see it even on the table, I have a feeling it'll just be lip service paid to improving childcare rather than the actual cold, hard cash it needs. Yeah, agreed. On, in, through, by, via Wednesday's budget. (laughs) I mean, this is exactly the argument that people like Jess Phillips and Rosie Duffield and Stella Creasy have increasingly put forward. If you don't have mums in high positions to make decisions, then they don't have the life experience to know how cripplingly high these expenses are for ordinary people. Mm -hmm. Not to sound like a politician. If you can afford to pay for childcare or your wife doesn't want to work and you can afford for her not to work then everybody else's experience is just a statistic on a piece of paper isn't it and it's easy to ignore absolutely you know if you're so busy heating your swimming pool yeah quite you know paying the nanny how are you gonna know i am joined on the zoom by actor writer and theater maker alexandra donachy alex hello Hello, hi. I love how chipper you sound, uh, given what we're about to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Alex, can you tell us about your... It's, I was going to say it's a new play, but obviously it premiered at Vault 2020. But 2020, guys, we all know what happened in 2020. Yeah. So it had a much shorter run than it was meant to. And now it's back. So tell us about the regenerated yes. When We Died. Oh, I like that. Yeah, actually, I like that as a term anyway because I still I was thinking the other day when I started. Obviously, I'm sort of relearning it, and it does still say when we died a new play by Alexander Donaghy. I'm like, is it though? But maybe it's that it's a regenerated play. So when we died is a play which, as you say, yeah, it, it's um, as we've sort of alluded to, it's not it's not the cheerfulestest of uh, subjects, but it's about an embalmer who goes to work one day, which is unexpected in itself um, because it's a day off, but goes in and discovers the person she's meant to be embalming is actually the person who raped her the best part of a year previously. And so that's not a a spoiler. That becomes quite evident quite early on. But the play is about then following 
quite a significant decision that the embalmer needs to make with regards to what she does with that information once she's sort of realised, you know, who he is. And we sort of go back through the year and sort of untangle how that event has then affected her life up into where she is today and where she's going to go from here. There are a few jokes in it. There is a few funny <laughs> bits in it. But yeah, it's not a, it's not a laugh a minute. It's not a musical. Yeah, I'm not going to lie, Alex. You've, you've not really made it sound less intense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's a tough sell. I, I think it's it's tricky, isn't it? It's one of those things that obviously sort of thematically, it's, it, it still feels like a very important, relevant story to tell, which is one of the, I mean, that's one of the weird things where we've been, I don't know if lucky is the right word, but with covid and and having it all the kind of plans for it scuppered that we had planned in 2020 that we're only just about managing to do now the one kind of plus i suppose is the play is still relevant yeah sadly it feels like it's going to be relevant forever i don't know i'm I'm feeling sort of lacking in hope at the moment given that it's like 136 years before we'll get global gender equality you're like, okay, I'll hold my breath then, shall I? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. If you just put that's... that in your calendar, that'll be fine. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> and actually, you said it's a tough seller. I think that's really interesting because when you when you do the kind of elevator pitch for anything, like let's, let's you know, big comparison here, but let's look at Shakespeare, elevator pitch some of his plays. You'd be like, I'm not going to go yeah. and see that. Absolutely not. <laughs> How many people die? <laughs> <laughs> All of them. <laughs> I read the synopsis for When We Died and was like, I need to talk to her. That sounds awful, but fascinating. <laughs> and important where did the idea come from because not only have we got sexual assault rape we've also got uh, dead bodies and embalming yeah yeah it really it did come from i i mean you know as you say it was meant to go on in 2020 i actually wrote the first draft in 2016 oh, wow. so so yeah whenever i think of like the day the idea came i got you know it was closer to a decade ago you know so it was really just an, a, a daydream. I think I must have seen, I keep thinking about it because I must have seen a documentary or read something, or something that made me kind of, because I am really genuinely interested in other people and other people's jobs, especially because I think a lot of people here, actor, writer, assume very, very glamorous. And it can be, don't get me wrong. Like, you know, it's a great job, but it can be not as glamorous as it as it sounds. It's 95% tracksuit, I think. It really is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, same, same. You know, there's good bits, but it's, you know, it is what it is. But obviously when you meet people, what are you doing? You say an actor, obviously they're, oh, that's really exciting. I'm like, well, this is fine. Because I think more than anything else, I never wanted to be anything else. This was sort of all I ever wanted to do, which is great because it meant I had a focus. You know, I didn't have any of that thing of, getting to 18 and thinking, well, I still don't know what I want to do. I had it all planned. But I suppose with that, it means that anything anybody else does, I'm just fascinated by it. And I love, like, I'm not, I, I, gory things don't bother me at all. So I, those really kind of tactile like medicines, like I love a documentary where they're doing open heart surgery. I lo- you know, love all of that stuff. Watch a lot of Grey's Anatomy. Have done since the beginning. <laughs> Would I have done if it was if I'd known it was going to go on for as long as it has? Maybe not. You made that commitment and then you stopped. Yeah, I'm mean, in mean, now. I that's, that. <laughs> that is, yeah. So I think I'd obviously watched something, or it's, the idea of embalming had like obviously got into my head, and then it was just a kind of series of what ifs and oh, I wonder, and and so just wrote it and kind of didn't stop. It was all very serendipitous, if that's the word, because I often wonder where it would have gone 
had I not written it when I did, there was the applications for the Bruntwood Playwriting Award were open. I put the play in like the day before the deadline, forgot all about it, and they have thousands of plays to read. So, you know, you, you don't find out for ages. It then got long listed for that. So I think that little bit it was the first thing, it was the first thing I'd properly written. I'd co-written stuff and I'd co-devised a lot of stuff. I'd had another full-length play on that had gone on for a while that I actually made with my sister. But that was partly devised. And obviously it was, you know, as I say, it was sort of a co-write project. This was the first proper non-autobiographical or non... Yeah, it was all mine. It was my baby and it was completely written. There was no, you know, thankfully it's not autobiographical. So I didn't really know whether I was a writer yet. You know, it's that typical thing of kind of needed somebody to tell me, OK, yeah, you, can, you can join the club now. <laughs> So, I mean, that moment still hasn't come. But so I, I sent it off. And then one of the readers of the plays for the award was Andy Rutledge, who is now the director of the play. So I've often wondered, actually, had that not happened, had they not done that then and that hadn't led to that, da, 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 would I have just sort of left it in a drawer and thought nothing of it? I don't know, but I'm glad I didn't because obviously now it's it's here and just has been such a huge part of my life for so long because uh-huh. obviously it's just constantly been sort of postponed and um, and delayed. They're really nice links to the play, I think, actually, because what Rachel, your embalming of protagonist, yeah. goes through is just sort of circumstances beyond her control coming together on that one fateful day. And that's sort of yeah. similar, but in a much more positive way, what happened yeah. to the play, to when we died. <laughs> also, I think embalming is an incredible choice because it is such a personal job. It is so intimate and yet it is also invasive. So for her to be dealing with that, knowing that that man had put her through something violently invasive, is an incredible juxtaposition. I wondered if you'd ever seen an embalming like in real life because reviews tell me that, you know, you go into quite some detail here. Yeah. Yeah, I do. And weirdly, that that's the bit that I think it's really interesting when you obviously we haven't done it in front of an audience loads of times. But for the short run that we did, I suppose you go in, as you say, like there's a lot of trigger warnings about sort of sexual assault and, da, 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 and you know, these are the things we're going to cover. Please look after yourselves if you're going to come. Then obviously, we, obviously, we need to warn again about the detail we're going to embalming as well. But I still don't think it really occurred to me because as I say, I don't I quite like all that stuff. <laughs> so it hadn't really occurred to me that other people didn't. And the way more visceral reactions were always to the stuff about that. You know, you'd sort of say, you know, you do this to the eye and people on the front row were like, oh my God, <laughs> you know. And yet, you know, you're talking about this other stuff and they're listening, but nobody's kind of verbally saying, oh, that's awful. Um, but no, so I haven't, but I've been offered the chance to. It's a, a, a guy I know who is an actor, but one of his other jobs because obviously we all have them is he runs leads funerals what do you do do you 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 guide a funeral present a funeral hosts funerals the celebrant yes that's the word yeah I think I was worried about saying celibate so yes (laughs) well you've said it now (laughs) said it now said it now (laughs) everyone knows that I'm an idiot he does that and then through that obviously works with a lot of people who you know obviously in the sort of funeral and the the, um post-dead care industry so he has often said, look, if it, you know, if it fits right and we can kind of work it out, we will. But obviously, as you say, it's such an intimate thing that completely understandably it has to be the right 
person time you know and there's probably this permission thing so I've never got to see one I've watched them on tv I've watched a lot of YouTube video I am a, a generally quite normal person I don't like <laughs> seek it out you know people are like what do you want to do at the weekend I'm like personally we're gonna rabbit hole of embalming videos um but what I'm saying is if the opportunity to go down a rabbit hole, hole of embalming videos comes up I don't turn it down <laughs> I think there's also a kindness in the act of embalming. You have to treat it with a kindness. And when we died and Rachel's conundrum, I suppose, deals with complex questions around revenge and forgiveness, how she owns her trauma. And I wondered, without spoilers, I guess, but Mm, whether Rachel mm. comes to any conclusions about these. And I I guess at this point, by Rachel, I kind of mean you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do. There's the sort of thing that can be spoiled in the play is the decision she makes at the end of it. So obviously I won't say what that is, but I think that ties into that a lot. And mm-hmm. I and there are some people that I know don't think she makes the right decision, right? Um, which I love. Like I love the fact that I've written something that is a little bit, indis- you know, that people are a bit kind of, peeved about that one thing I will say that I find interesting is it's only ever been that I know of that have said it to me or the director it have, have been men who have said no I don't I don't think she should have done that should have done this so okay <laughs> which makes me feel very happy about it kind of makes me go no I think I made the right yeah and like again I don't really want to spoiler it but I mean I imagine a lot of our listeners like me will have decided what that means she does but again right like, well, yeah I'm leave yeah. that for people to go yeah. and see I do think victims, survivors, whichever term a woman who has been raped or otherwise sexually abused chooses to use, often imagine being faced with their abuser again in all sorts of scenarios. Like listeners of the podcast know that I have been abused in the past and that is something that's definitely run across my, what if I bumped into them, blah, 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 blah. The idea of actually having them so very vulnerable in your hands, though, that is a power that's quite terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that, I, you know, I suppose, as I say, it's not autobiographical. But of course, yeah. I don't know many women that haven't had some experience that, you know, that, as you say, that is abusive. And I think there are a few moments of, ah, you know, if, if I could or what, you know, what would you do? What would I do? And I think what I've thought about, I suppose it's it's something that's maybe come from coming back to it a couple of years later. I'm on three years older than I was when we first did it in front of an audience. You know, I turned 30 in that space as well. So I feel like I've changed quite a lot in three years. And just even just the way sentences kind of sound when I run the lines now, I think, oh, it doesn't read as well. And so I've even changed a couple of things like that, just the way I'd say certain things. And I think one thing I'd never thought about until this time round is, you're right, we think about that all the time. I think, you know, what, what if I did see them? What if I do bump into them? What have we done when if and when we have bumped into them Mm -hmm. but I wonder if they ever think that about us and I think maybe pre me too and pre us talking about these things as much as we do now maybe they never would have thought that but I do often wonder you know when just things like when you see a news article are there abusers that have done things know they've done things but thus far maybe got away with it do they read that and think 
oh dear <laughs> or you know or you know I hope what would I do if I bumped into I, mean, I don't know that I don't suppose anybody sort of thinks of other people as their victim I don't, I don't know I don't really if we understood the inner workings of these people's minds we'd all be well probably wouldn't have as much of an issue with it but I think it does um kind of raises those questions and uh, and I think as in the, the play does but I think it also I don't know I, I don't know that it offers a kind of a solution to it but I think I suppose there's an element of you're not alone I think we all do mm. I think we all wonder and it's whatever your reaction is should you ever be lucky or unlucky enough I, I suppose because obviously there's some people that I think probably really really want that closure maybe do want to see their abuser maybe a few years later down the line of once they've sort of recovered might not be the right word but certainly feel they're in a better place maybe that's what they want they want to see that person again and have that out I don't know but I think the play yeah sort of lets you know that you're not the only person that's thought that and whatever you do or don't do if and when that opportunity does arise is is the right thing to do within reason I mean (laughs) probably not condoning (laughs) I mean obviously Rachel's had one decision taken away from her because he is already dead yeah yeah. And and for Rachel, I guess, in a way that a lot of women may be thinking, oh, what would happen if, or it would go this way. I want, I want it to go this way. This is how the script would run. We know so well that scripts never run in the real world in the same way that they run in our head, unless, of yeah. course, you are a playwright. But for Rachel, she actually has so much more control over that situation. And yet, I don't know that that would make it much easier at all because what she won't have control over is all of the emotions and the baggage and how does what she does affect his family do they know that they are the family of a rapist all of these questions right yeah yeah that one I will not answer though because that would be a big spoiler (laughs) um but yeah no but you're you're right and I think that is what a lot of the play does I think more so than the first draft originally did and that's one thing we really worked out before that 2020 run myself and Andy the fact that these events even if they're you know these kind of sometimes you know it can be anything I mean Jesus you know what it's like it it, it can be a comment or you know it can be that can totally throw your day off but that's the point it can be something that small or huge but it doesn't just affect that one person in that mm. time it, it you know what it does to you as you say the baggage the trauma you're then left with the way you just the way you see the world changes after something like that happens to you and it it's it's rubbish but obviously that then has an effect on you the way you carry yourself the way you work and walk in certain spaces and 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 act in certain spaces and and that is obviously going to have an effect on the people that are with you and around you that's what I really hope the play does is is shine a bit more of a light on that as well that these aren't things that happen and then we're sad for a bit and then we're okay again it Every time something like that happens, in my experience at least, is it, it it shifts or it knocks something else in you and it's another lump of shit you've got to deal with that you just gotta be more aware of that Yeah. I yeah. think people still think we're just making up. I don't know. Like it just feels like as you said earlier, you know, we I think we were talking about before we started recording, like so much of the stuff that we deal with is 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 rubbish and it doesn't sort of, there's no sort of real sign that it's going to stop any time soon as you say this this play premiered in 2020 it's been in your brain and sort of on the page since 2016 and we talk about this kind of stuff not specifically embalmers but this kind of stuff (laughs) all the time on standard issue but you know we've got a 1.3 percent charge rate and that is charge not conviction so rape has basically been decriminalized 
And despite like loads of organizations and charities, you know, we're going to better educate boys and men. We're going to, we're going to talk against and discourage inciting male violence against women. And yet here we still are. And so, as we said at the top, it, it does feel like sadly when we died will always be relevant. Yeah. And there's a really awful kind of weird feeling with that because part of you is thinking, oh my God, that's awful. Like surely the aim of a play like this or a story like this is to not be needed in however many, you know, years. But yeah, as a writer performer of it and, you know, the team that I work with on it, there's a really sick feeling where you're kind of like, well, that's good. You know, we could tour it again or we can do this again. And it's like, oh, how do you kind of like make those two things okay? We're so zeitgeist. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I think the only thing that I suppose makes me feel okay about that is that we've also got some um workshops that we created alongside the play and we do put a lot of effort into the kind of well-being in it. and as I said there's trigger warnings all over that you know there's no as I say that the fact that what happens to the embalmer what has happened to her isn't a spoiler you know that you're not going to be that isn't going to be a surprise you'll find out very early as you say it's all over the um the, the flies the synopsis it's everywhere if you look at that and you think this isn't for me not yeah, fine. And if you do and you think I'm going to be okay and then you think halfway through this isn't for me, you can leave. All of our shows are quote unquote relaxed performances. They're not sort of advertised as that, but there's no there's no hard feelings if somebody needs to leave. I think you're telling a very important story. And while it's clear like this is fiction, this is something that yeah. you have made up rather than being autobiographical, you know, it could happen. And again, not necessarily to an embalmer, but to so many women, it happens yeah. all of the fucking time. So it yeah. is really, really important that you're telling this story. So, you know, don't leave halfway through people. Sit through it. Talk to <laughs> yeah. people about it. Yeah. Alex, we'll look after you. Know, you. <laughs> she's working hard for us. <laughs> when We Died is a Carbon Theatre production and heads yes. out on a UK tour from Wednesday the 22nd of March until Thursday the 6th of April. You can get more info and tickets at carbontheatre.org.uk forward slash when we died and i haven't seen it but obviously did quite a lot of reading round before chatting to alex and the reviews from 2020 are kick-ass so i'm very excited to catch it and you should too (laughs) alex where can people follow you on the socials to find out what else you're up to see any gory videos that you're posting and sharing (laughs) maybe join you in an embalming watchathon one sunday afternoon oh my god that's just a film club oh i'd love that super cringe but I committed to this a few years ago and I kind of don't regret it, but my handle on uh, Twitter for however long <laughs> I can bear to be on the cesspit for, um, but also Instagram um, is at BAFTAface. Um. <laughs> Tip of the hat, awards <laughs> coming to you for that at least. At the Manifestation. <laughs> Alex, it's been an unexpected pleasure given the topic Aww. having a chat with you, so thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for having me, it's been great. do one kid jenny off the blocks i'm joined by boxer caroline dubois caroline hi thank you very much for joining me today thank you the pleasure's all mine happy to be here (laughs) Uh, so caroline you have represented team gb at the olympics you took gold at the youth olympics you're a european youth champion and england boxing national youth champion you've been young sports personality of the year and you're only 22, so you're focusing now on your professional career, aren't you? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm at the stage where I've turned professional. So that's a big, you know, focus for me at the moment. I'm pushing for that and trying to be the best I can be every day. So far in your professional career, you've had six professional bouts and you've won all of them, most recently in February against Farishé Mashouri. That was at Wembley. What is that like as an experience? That must be quite intense. It's amazing. I love fighting at Wembley. I love fighting at home. So whether it's the O2, whether it's Wembley, whether it's, you know, smaller shows, whatever. I just like fighting back at home. It's always a nice time when you can bring a lot of people and family, friends. And, and it's a good atmosphere, you know. But Wembley's amazing. Last time it was amazing. It was a great atmosphere. The crowd the the people the support that turned up was great and I'm so appreciative of it and it was just a good experience for me you know obviously Farish she wasn't who I was meant to be fighting but it was a case of you know either fight her or don't fight at all so it was just a good another learning step for me another time for me picking up some you know rounds and, and just getting used to you know stepping in the ring as a professional fighter the media weeks is completely different the build-up is completely different the fighting is a little bit different too so all this is experience and I'm grateful for each and every part of it when you're somewhere like iconic like Wembley or the O2 are you a bit like you know do you have to pinch yourself a little bit because obviously you're only six fights in you're very early on in your professional career definitely especially when I first turned pro and I was fighting like I remember my first fight was in Cardiff and it was just, it was definitely a pinch myself moment because I suppose, you know, as an amateur, when you go to Olympics, that's your moment where it's like everybody's focused on your zoning. It's the biggest tournament. It's massive. There's crowds. It's everything. But I didn't get that because it was during lockdown. So it was very quiet, very low key. So the only time I started to get that really buzz and that attention and that the media side of things is when I turned pro. And so it was definitely a bit of a pinch me moment and definitely something that I had to get used to. But I feel like I'm getting the hangs of it, you know. I know what to expect. I know the routine that we go through. You've mentioned the Olympics there. It used to be the case that if you're professional, you couldn't fight at the yeah. Olympics as well. Is yeah. that now changed? Are you able to do both? It's changed now. There's professional fighters going back. Obviously, you have to be a very high level and you have to go through the qualifying process like everybody else. But you can go back into the amateur program and the amateur setup and, and try to qualify for the Olympics. And is that something that you will be hoping to do for Paris next year? I'm not sure. Right now, I'm focusing on my professional journey, but we'll see. You know, you never know what's going to happen. You never know the next move. And I'm excited. I've got a great journey going ahead of me and I'm excited for the future. I genuinely am. So whether it's going to Olympics or staying professional and dominating, I'm ready for either one. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got into boxing in the first place? Because you are one of 11 siblings. That must have been a long wait for the bathroom in the morning. Your older brother, Daniel, is also a boxer. So is this something like, was it in your family? Were you inspired by your older brother? What was it that, that got you interested? It's a big family and um, it's a very sporting family. I was doing many different sports, gymnastics, running, swimming, you know, did a few things and I enjoyed it and everything. So it was definitely a very sporty family. My focus was a lot on sports, but I would say I followed my brother into the sport. You know, as the middle child, you have to fight for your position or your parents kind of forget about you. So, And I was noticing that Daniel was getting a lot of attention and respect <laughs> and everything like that through the boxing. And I suppose, you know, you want a little bit of that. You want a little bit of respect. And, and it's something I was, you know, I'm a very determined and focused person and I'm incredibly competitive. So boxing was really perfect for me. It was. It's quite recent that w women have been able to fight at professional level, at Olympic level at all. It's only sort of, I think, 1997, mm. the first women's professional license was issued. And that was after quite a big hoo-ha in, in getting it in the first place. But I think it has come quite 
far in quite a short space of time. It seems to me that there's an increase in demand for it. It also seems that there are more and more kind of household names in terms of female boxers. You know, also we're seeing places like Sky Sport who are broadcasting it. What do you think? Like, how, how do you think it's, it's coming along? It's coming on amazing. And, and one of the ways that I know it's coming on is kind of a little thing. But what I've noticed is when I was a young kid, like 9, 10, 11, I would tell people, oh, I'm a boxer. And they'll be like, what? Why are you boxing for? You're a girl, you shouldn't box. And they would be naturally over 50%, 90% of the time, you know, I'll be met with like criticism or people just not really understanding what what it is I'm actually doing and what and what I mean when I say that I'm a boxer. They'll be like, oh, you you can't be getting hit in the face. You can't be doing this. Like it could be generally, I'll be in a car and, I'll, and the driver will ask what I'm doing. It could be anything. Whereas nowadays, I'll be driving in a car and, and the driver will be like, so what is you doing? I'll be like, oh, I'm a boxer. And, and it'll be nothing. You'll be like, oh, okay. Oh, I saw the Clusher Shields fight the other day. That was really good. Or I saw Katie Taylor. Or I saw so-and-so. As you're saying, you know, there's a lot more household names. There's a lot more, you know, respect that goes with being a female fighter. And um, I'm thankful for all the women, you know, back in the day who, who stuck with it, you know, despite the natural criticism and made to feel like they're not worthy or they're not going to be good enough for it. But if they hadn't stuck with it, you know, we would be in their position today. So I'm very thankful for all the females from all generations. From your perspective now, you're kind of paving the way as well for the next generation. So there'll be young girls watching you. How does that feel? It's crazy. You know, I, I don't know when the change from just being a normal fighter to now be considered a role model happen it happened overnight you know it's crazy and I always catch myself like I wouldn't have even thought of it like that I would have just seen me as someone who goes down the gym trains really hard gets a fight and performs but as you said people are going to be watching young girls young boys people are going to be watching and my story and other people's story that's what connects to them and yeah, if I can inspire anybody to just not necessarily become a boxer, but, you know, just stay committed. And if you really want something that you know that you you can do it, you know, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. So last year in October, you took part in the first ever all-female boxing card. Yeah. The first time that's ever happened, that must have been incredible to be part of that sort of historic moment. It was amazing. As you said before, it's never been done before and it's, it definitely was, it was risky and it was it was bold. Sky Sports, Boxer, everyone involved, they knew where boxing was heading and they, they were adamant to be the, the forerunners on pushing it and they took a bold stance. I, I remember there was a lot of criticism straight off the bat as soon as it was announced that it was going to be all-female, so no male undercard, no undercards to, to bring in the attention. They were met with a lot of criticism and a lot of pushback. I was a bit unsure of how it was going to turn out. I was afraid that, you know, we were separating the sport too much or we're making too much of a big noise about being an all-female card when it should just be boxing. The support that, that was received, the, the attention, the audience numbers, the ratings, the, the fact that it's sold out tells you that this is boxing and this is where it's heading. And It doesn't matter about who's fighting, it matters about if it's a good fight and if it's exciting. And that's what it was and it was amazing. I'm so happy to be a part of it and it was definitely something I'm going to remember until I'm headlining, I reckon. Any more of those on the cards, do you think? Hopefully, you know, what we need for that to happen again is a great undercard as, as what we had last time. Like, I feel like everybody on that card is has a potential to be a world champion. And, and that's just me being honest. Like, I feel like everybody from way down to the bottom of the undercard to the to the co-main, it was amazing. Like the level, the high skill level. We need a great undercard. We need a great, interesting main card that can drag in the audiences and, 
you know, get people talking and, and it can happen again. And I want to be a part of it when it does happen again. Besides, obviously, the career, what what do you think you've gotten from boxing? Do you think it's taught you other things like, you know, discipline and, and self-belief? 100% boxing isn't just the sport. It teaches you through all the hardships that you go through. It teaches you um, how to be disciplined, how to, you know, if you say you're going to, like, for example, if I'm a fighter and I'm saying I'm going to box at a certain weight or I'm going to do a certain thing, I can't just say it. I have to prepare for it. You know, if I say I'm going to make a certain weight, I have to train, dedicate my life, change everything and get myself down to that weight. If I say I'm going to be a world champion, I have to change my lifestyle. I have to change who I'm around, change my sleeping habits, my eating habits just to get me there. So it teaches you, you know, hard work. It teaches you that if you want something, you have to work to get it. It's not just going to come by. You can't wish it to happen. You can't pray for it to happen. Obviously, that helps, but it isn't just that. You need to put in the work. You have to dedicate your life. And it teaches that, you know, every time I've lost it, it's taught me many, many things that I'm thankful for. And, and it's, it's, it's shown me who I am. It's shown me how hard I can dig for something and how hard I'm willing to work for something. What would you say to anyone who maybe has thought about, you know, not a career in boxing, but like just they've they've seen people do it and they thought, well, that looks like fun or maybe they'd like to have a go at it, but they feel a bit nervous. Mm-hmm. What would you say to those people? I mean, I feel like nowadays for anybody, male, female, whatever age you are, young, old, whatever level you are in boxing, either you're elite level or you've never laced up a glove before. You know, you can go down to any gym in London, out of London, whatever. And there's so many clubs that cater to all levels, all levels of experience, the newbies to the elites. If you want to take it seriously or if you just want to go down and maybe get fit or just enjoy yourself and meet social network with more people and have a community. So I feel like all the boxing gyms that I've been to um, recently have been very, you know, accepting and, and welcoming to all people. They're definitely very open. You know, one of the prime examples I can think of is Repton Amateur Boxing Club. When I was a young girl, it was Repton Amateur Boys Boxing Club. You know, they were very negative to any sort of change. They were very unreceptive to people who weren't very experienced and stuff like that. Whereas now if you go to Repton on the senior nights, it's it's packed out with females, males, beginners, elites, and, and they're all mixed together and they're all training together. So I definitely see that change and I feel like just give it a go and give it a try. Don't let your own fears or limitations stop you from experiencing something new. Before I had my daughter, I used to, I never actually had a fight with anyone because I don't want to get punched in the face, but I used to do training <laughs> every week and I actually oh, loved yeah? it. I think it's such a good thing to do. I think everyone should go and hit something that's designed to be hit for an hour yeah. a week and they feel a lot happier in the world, I think, a lot more relaxed. Do you, are you quite yeah. chilled out outside of the boxing ring? Does it take um, out all of the aggression of your day-to-day life? I don't know if it takes it out, but it helps me channel it. You know, instead of getting frustrated at other things and other people, I know how to channel it. I know how to control my anger, I know to control my emotions a lot better because of the boxing. And it, boxing gives you so many emotions. As you said before, you walk into the gym, the excitement, the euphoria, hitting the bag. You you feel good when you hit the bag. You feel good when you mm-hmm. hit pads. And it just helps you to gain more control over your emotions, I think. And, and you're the one ruling and controlling them instead of them controlling you. So you're in the same stable, as it were, of the promoter boxer who also represent the likes of Savannah Marshall, Clarissa Shields, big names in women's boxing what's it like to be up there next to them because also you're trained by Shane McGuigan as well aren't you who's obviously the son of Barry but very well known in his own right as a trainer what's Mm -hmm. what's that like working with those guys 
it's great. It's it's definitely a new learning experience every time. It's good when you're surrounded around people, you know, different people, different attitudes, cultures, you know, perspectives. Obviously, on terms of the boxer side of things, Sky Sports, Ben Shalom and Sky have done a great job in pushing boxing. Um, they're making waves right now, I feel. And they've got a very new stable and, and I feel like they're new to this game. So they're very eager to impress and eager to support the fighters and make sure they're, they're getting the, the lion's share of things. And I'm very thankful to be with Sky Sports. They've pushed me amazingly, got me all these great fights, got me busy, got me on good cards. Ben Shalom and Sky, they've just been very excited for the journey, I feel. And uh, Shane, obviously, he's experienced, he's used to this boxing game, obviously coming from his dad. You know, he was brought up around boxing. He was brought inside of the boxing world and not even just the fighting side of things, but the business side of things. So he's got a very experienced mindset. Doesn't let things phase him. And so that's when you know when he says somebody's the real deal. You know, he's speaking from experience because he's been around so many people. He knows exactly what to look for, what to expect. So, you know, I take his advice very seriously and I take the criticism and the compliments. Well, Quite a lot of people, Caroline, are saying that you are the real deal. So that must feel nice. What is next for you? We're still like early days in your career, but will we be looking at any, I don't know, attempts on a title anytime soon? Anything coming up you can tell us about? 100%. I feel like this year is going to be a big year for me my breakout year I've been saying it time and time again my first year as a pro I just wanted to get used to being in the ring I want to get used to the whole media week the whole fight weeks the whole atmosphere the fighting in different big arenas small arenas big cards small cards getting used to being a professional and I feel like I've done that I've gained that level of experience now and I said my second year I'm going to kick on really put my my feet down and make waves in this sport and I feel like that's what I'm trying to do hopefully I want to be fighting by world for a world title by the end of this year and if not definitely be ma- in major contention to be challenging for one next year you know there's so many names so many people that I see myself being able to mix in there with now like Michaela May I see she's moving up in weight to my weight division she wants to fight Katie Taylor for all the belts and she obviously needs to get in that position since she lost all her belts recently so she's also challenging for her respect in the new weight division and I'm challenging to gain respect in in my weight division I feel like we can be someone that you know cross paths along the line it'd be great if we can get that going for a world title or be the final mandatory for a world title it'd be great so watch this space for more information about upcoming fights then finally Caroline how's your trash talk (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I feel like it's, it's something that comes. Either you have it or you don't. You can't practice for it. It's just, it comes when it's, it's there. Caroline, where can we follow you on social media to keep up to date with what, what you're doing? I'm on Instagram, so that's Caroline Dubois1. And I'm on Facebook, same as, same username. And obviously I'm on Sky Sports. And you can just stay tuned, look out for me, and, and I'm sure you'll see me. Caroline, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Welcome to Rated or Dated. This might be the shortest one we've ever done. Dated. Mick, what are we watching next week? Yeah. Sorry, lads. Uh, Yeah. I thought it would be interesting to talk about. Turns out it won't be. But anyway, uh, let's crack on. 
This week we shielded our ears as we watched 1968's Mel Brooks' Lolfest, The Producers. What does lol stand for in your world now, Jen? I, I use the term ironically, you understand. Okay. The idea for the film was based on some real-life characters encountered by Brooks in the early days of his career, including a chap who elicited cold hard cash from the elderly ladies he was knocking off in order to finance his theatrical productions, and a couple of other producers he knew living suspiciously well for themselves despite only ever making box office flops. Starting life as a play, the producers became a film and Brooks's directorial debut, winning him an Oscar for the best original screenplay. As with many of our rated or dated picks, it was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry and still, lads, seriously, (laughs) still regularly gets a nod in funniest film lists, Mm. including one published by Time Out Mm. just last week, number 46, in case you're interested. I mean, you'd have thought they'd seen more films, but apparently not. It's the only reasonable explanation. It tells the story of thoroughly unpleasant chap Max Bialystok, played by Zero Mostel, a Broadway producer who cops off with old ladies in exchange for funding for his productions. He's interrupted by accountant Leo Bloom, played by Gene Wilder, who's come to audit Bialystok's dodgy books and discovers a minor fraud, a $2,000 discrepancy in the accounts for his last play. It's at this point that Leo hits upon a plan that left me scratching my head for a considerable amount of time, if I'm honest, before reading a write-up <laughs> of the plot and then I understood what it had been about. Sell more shares than you need for a play that costs you less than the money you've raised to put on and make it a surefire flop. Robert's your father's brother you're rich i was like why how what is maths but the answer is very simple because no one will bother to audit a flop says bloom that's an assumption sir anyway (laughs) given that he's there auditing a flop so yeah bloom despite having had the idea himself gets cold feet but bialystok convinces him to become his partner and they set about the business of creating a play that is unlikely to do well before hot-footing it to rio and what's unlikely to be popular with the 1960s theater going public of new york city hitler lads it's Hitler. <laughs> Our protagonists convince former Nazi and complete nutcase Franz Liebkin to sign over the rights to Springtime for Hitler, a gay romp with Adolf and Ava at the Birch's Garden, which they proceed to develop, hiring utterly useless Roger Debris to direct and casting sentient hairpiece Lorenzo Saint Dubois, aka LSD, played by Dick Sean as Hitler, who's turned up to the casting by accident. Nick caging it like a pro, LSD makes for a charming lead. (laughs) And let's face it, titular number springtime for Hitler is a bit of a banger. (laughs) I mean, you you pick your wins in this one, don't you? You've got it, haven't you? Titular by name, titular by nature, because there are also some tits. Also, there's assistant Ulla who has tits. But anyway, who'd have thought it? The play is a big hit. Will our dastardly duo get away with it? And will they ever shut up? (laughs) At the time of its release, the film received mixed reviews. Bearing in mind that this was only 23 years after the end of the Second World War, it was a pretty risky subject to be making lols about, even though Brooks and the leads were all Jewish themselves. And indeed, some did not appreciate the humour, though Brooks has said he used the film as a way to poke fun at Hitler because, and this is a quote, if I get on the soapbox and wax eloquently, it will be blown away in the wind. But if I do springtime for Hitler, it will never be forgotten. I think you can bring down totalitarian governments faster by using ridicule than you can with invective. Indeed, it's a format that has been used a fair amount, to be fair. Mm. Mm -hmm. 
It's quite hard to imagine now in the world we live in, but this film was remade in 2005, starring Nathan <laughs> Lane, Matthew Broderick and Uma Thurman, and it flopped. Would it be remade now? I guess that's a question we'll discuss. Had you seen this? Was it a con, do you think? <laughs> It's a good point. <laughs> Did they actually sell extra shares in that film? Had either of you ever seen this before? I had, yes. Yeah. Long, long, long time ago. Because I couldn't remember a single thing about it. In fact, I couldn't even remember if I liked it or I didn't like it. But I know that I'd seen it. Mick, what about you? Maybe I was drunk. I haven't seen the original, but I had seen the 2005 remake because Will Ferrell's in it. Oh, is it good, Mick? No, it's terrible, yeah. Jeff. <laughs> I bet Nathan Lane is a more likeable lead than that guy. Absolutely that, Hannah. The the fact that Zero Mostel is supposed to be charming is utterly baffling to me. He's literally five years younger than the old ladies that he's, you know, bedding for cash. What's going on with his sweaty hair as well? I mean, you have to put the energy into the older lady, Jen. I don't don't know. (laughs) Where to start? I have a starting point. When I was watching this, the interesting thing to me is the thing that everybody found most offensive when it came out is the thing that I actually find least offensive in this now. I think the best thing is, you know, Springtime. Oh, without a show of a doubt. The most outrageous stuff. Yeah. The more outrageous this film is, in that sense, the funnier it gets. Mm. You know, that's not what would put me off it. And it made me think about whether it would be made now, given what you said. And it made me think about probably what the closest equivalent to it in recent years is, which is Jojo Rabbit, which is about turning Hitler Hmm. into a a comical character. And there was some kickback to Jojo Rabbit, interestingly, but only from reviewers who weren't actually Jewish. Oddly, the Jewish community didn't seem to mind it. So I think we still have that idea that, that Mel Brooks is espousing that the best way to undermine someone is to take the piss out of them. 100%. But I just found the rest of it, everything around that moment, to be absolutely, like, eye-clawingly awful, except, actually, LSD's audition, which I also found quite a lot of fun to watch. Dick Sean. Yeah. I think, actually, he turns (laughs) in a really good performance in a really bad film. Yeah. Yeah. They're just, why are they shouting all of their lines? The level of hysteria that starts at the beginning... And then just gets more and more. And, you know, I read yeah. the reviews where they were like, oh, Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder are just an incredible comic duo. You can feel their kind of dynamics is so great. And I was just like, oh, no, I just hate it. They're just shouting their lines at each other. And I have a, a real soft spot for Gene Wilder. Mm. I think he can be incredible. But I was just like that whole like, oh, he's anxious. So his anxiety means he's shouting. And I just... I didn't understand. There was no sort of nuance. There was no trying to tell a story. You were just literally being smacked over the head with the story. There's no yang, is there? Because mm. I thought when Mostel first appears, I kept thinking, oh, he's sort of... I didn't do a lot of reading about this, but it, he felt like he was sort of loosely based on a sort of Orson Welles type. You know, this person who, who liked to make sort of big pronouncements, who spoke in a really sort of, you know, that's the way I speak. Come on, sort of theatrical, lovey-ish mm. way. But yeah, a minute Gene Wilder arrived, he should have been the opposite. And then that would have weighed that out. But he isn't. He's exactly the same. And then the writer's exactly the same. And then the director is exactly the same. It's like they're on stage. Yes. They're all giving these way, way, way over the top performances that are just too big. Yeah, it is really big. Yeah, too too big. big. I totally agree with you. The thing is, it's Mel Brooks. So occasionally a gag lands because you know this film absolutely not for me but he's a a very talented man so occasionally a gag lands but they were so few and far between i wanted to ask you about that mick 
So I remember watching this film once, and I think it would have been about 2004, 2005 when I watched it, and I didn't enjoy it, and I picked it because there was an absence of much else to pick, and I thought it might be interesting to discuss, as I said earlier. But it's not my kind of film anyway, like it's just not the kind of thing that I would enjoy. You do have a little bit of a penchant for the silly. I do. So are you a fan of Mel Brooks in general? I like some Mel Brooks, but now I'm kind of doubting it because I've not watched any for a long time. So I'd say, oh yeah, I like Blazing Saddles. But I'm like, do I like Blazing Saddles still? I don't know. I'd have to check when it's having a birthday. Did you think the same, Hannah? Yeah, I thought exactly that. I'd be yeah. interested. I don't think I've seen that. The thing that I always think about when I think about Mel Brooks is him when he was on The One Show a couple of years ago. Young Frankenstein, mm. was. they were doing it in the West End. I think Leslie Joseph was in it. And uh, he was on the one show and they did what they do on the one show. And he was like, what the fuck is this? This is really weird. And I was like, I think I might like you more than Robin Hood Men in Tights would would have led oh, me to I, believe. I loved Robin Hood Men in Tights mm. when it came out. I've got Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles on DVD. But yeah, I'd be interested to watch them now. He also did quite a charming thing in lockdown with his son Max, who's a writer who wrote the really excellent book, World War Z. Anyway, they made this really charming thing in lockdown where Max Brooks was outside the house and Mel Brooks was behind the patio doors. They were saying, like, I know it's really hard for you not to see your parents, but, you know, I'm not allowed to go in and see my dad. But it was funny and it was like, it was nice. And it was like, ah, Mel Brooks. But yeah, I immediately thought, oh my God, I have to reassess mm. everything I think about Mel Brooks based on how terrible I thought this. Because I can't, I can't have thought it was that terrible the first time I saw it. Otherwise, I would have known. Yeah, surely. going into it again, going into it again. But or maybe I don't but know. It's not the Hitler references that are like offensive. No. I, I totally like buy no. Mel Brooks's explanation, yeah. and I think it is really well done. And, and the same as you two, that is the best bit, and not even just the best bit relative to us hating it. Like some of that was really funny. I think it's very well done and very well observed. Yeah. But the homophobia and the misogyny, oh my, oh my goodness. God. Yeah. Whole new levels. The interesting thing about the misogyny was, I thought, the bit about him, like, sleeping with the old ladies for money, I thought that's like a, one of those prime examples that you could write an argument either way, mm. that that was Empowering sexist or not. for the old ladies, they're paying for what they want. Exactly. Exactly. Or you could say, like, but then the minute the secretary arrived, I thought, oh, no, this film is sexist as fuck. It really is I mean, really sexist. I the, the yeah. women in it are either silly old ladies or they are just sentient tits, aren't they? Like, they literally <laughs> yeah. don't do anything, do they? It's so interesting when his secretary turns up, when the secretary is hired, that we're supposed to believe that actually when she's like, are we going to make love, boo, that she has fallen for him? And I'm like, isn't it interesting that old men or middle-aged men are perpetuating this myth that that is exactly how this will work yeah i said interesting i should have said predictable yeah. i mean we've answered yeah. all my questions already lads <laughs> <laughs> the homophobia though oof, that is outrageous oh, yeah. and it's not necessarily like the the gay characters are, are, are very over the top gay characters fine again not necessarily a, a problem with that like you see some of that in the birdcage and other films but it's the straight characters responses to it which are really quite offensive yeah oh yeah, yeah. he's a man in a dress when the the assistant of the director or whoever he is 
boyfriend, I don't know. When he first turns up and he answers the door, I thought, oh, God, is he in brown face? Or having seen the birds recently, <laughs> is he supposed to be like that leathery tad thing? I could Grandpa work out. Mitch I could rides work again. Out if it's it just, was offensive just a standard 25 year old in the 1960s, <laughs> Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> Well then, lads, yeah. I think we've all answered this question, but let's just, for the sake of formalities, let's let's do it. Rated or dated? Yeah, dated. So, so, so very dated. Yep, agreed. I can only apologise again. Dated. Who is up next? Tis I, and I have picked Beetlejuice. <gasps> Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. I'm actually excited about this, but also nervous. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.